One of the most important aspects of our spiritual journey is community, being able to come together with like-minded people on the same path who share a similar view. However, the potential danger of this is getting caught in an echo chamber and not being able to perceive when or where we might be getting detoured. My guest for this episode of the Karmic Warrior podcast spent nearly two decades building an interfaith community of spiritual and religious leaders committed to promoting global peace and healing. Reverend Charles Gibbs is an Episcopal priest, a Sufi visionary, peace builder, and poet, and today he's going to share his insights about the challenges of bringing people together of different spiritual and religious views and how these challenges can ultimately lead to a profound sense of shared identity and purpose. Hey there, yogis and karmic warriors. Welcome to the Karmic Warrior Podcast, where we talk about living an extraordinary life by practicing time-proven and tested teachings of yoga, wisdom, traditions. I am your host, Lisa Ingalls Witter, and the goal of this podcast is super simple, just to make it easier than ever before for anyone to find happiness and fulfillment in their everyday life by using wisdom teachings that have already been passed down for millennia and to occasionally dispel any popular myths, especially in new age spirituality that hold us back without our even knowing. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast here on YouTube and anywhere that you can find podcasts. Maybe one of the biggest challenges that my clients come to me with is that they find themselves stuck repeating the same lessons over and over again. They're frustrated, maybe at a loss, because most of them have already done years of the work. They've done therapy and coaching and spiritual practices, but they still struggle with the same unhealthy relationships, or they feel like they should be further along in their life than they are personally, professionally, or maybe even spiritually. And if you can relate to that, Well, then I invite you to head on over to www.karmic-warrior.com to grab my free report on why you keep getting handed that one lesson in life, even if you spent years doing the work. In this free report, I reveal to you the secret about harnessing the law of karma to finally break free of that one lesson so that you can finally live a freer, fuller life right now. I put the link in the description below here. And now, my conversation with Reverend Charles Gibbs. So for those of us that are interested in this project of spiritual growth, of spiritual awakening, there are, I believe, four things that are needed. They are the teachings, the teacher, our practice, and our community. So when I say teachings, I mean time-proven principles that have been accepted maybe as what we would call truth divinely inspired these are principles that work for all people all times in all situations and when these teachings are put into practice they yield results and then this the second piece would be the teacher right a trusted mentor a trusted guide who has walked this path before who can effectively share the map who can 
unfold the teachings for us who can effectively evaluate where we're at on our path and, and in our own spiritual unfolding. And of course, we have the practice, which is the study of the teachings of the scripture, self-inquiry, um, meditation, contemplation, prayer, um, these types of things. And then finally, the community, others who are on the same path as us, who are committed to following the, the particular teachings. So my guest today is Reverend Charles P. Gibbs, and he has, I believe, a very unique experience of engaging very intimately with each one of these four things. As an Episcopal priest, he's priest, he spent six years leading a congregation in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, but then he went on to found and become the executive director of the United Religions Initiative, which is a global interfaith network that's committed to promoting peace and justice and healing, and his work with the United Religions Initiative spanned for 17 years from 1996 to 2013. I think I got that right. So I want to give a very warm welcome to Reverend Charles P. Gibbs. Welcome, Reverend, to our show, to the Karmic Warrior podcast. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, thank you, Lisa, and please call me Charles. And I'd like to say thank you for the work you do and the light you bring into the world. And one little nuance, just because it's important to me, I was one of the founders, I was the founding executive director of URI, and there was a global community ultimately that was uh, held the founders. Uh, there was a founding visionary, Bishop Bill Swing. Uh, but to me, and this goes to one of your one of your four realities. There was a community. Uh, URI could not have been founded without that community. Yeah, well, I want to get to that. And before we get to that, I'd love to have you share a little bit more with us about your, your background. I, I know that you got a degree in theater arts and creative writing. That's sort of where you started out. Um, and you did that before you went to seminary. What made you decide to go to seminary and become an Episcopal priest? I was born into the Episcopal Church uh, for much of my growing up. Church was the most compelling uh, part of life for me. The figure of Jesus uh, was for me an inspiration. Uh, and if I was often puzzled by some of the words that were put in his mouth and often puzzled to outraged by some of the passages of scripture that were read. At the heart of it, I felt this call to be a presence uh, of inclusive love and peace. That, to me, uh, was central. There's a story, I don't know if it's true or it's just a story, but when I was growing up and uh, one Sunday in church, uh, in a church where the kids were supposed to stay in the pews while the parents went up to receive communion. My mother headed up the aisle to get communion, and I bolted out of the pew and ran up after her saying, I want to get drunk too. 
Uh, I think that was an early manifestation of my Sufi side, uh, that notion of spiritual intoxication. That, that to me has, has been central. Uh, I, probably at 11 years old, had a sense that I was supposed to be a priest. And I quit going to church when I was 17 because the questions I had as I was awakened more and more intellectually, I uh, didn't find a, a, a comfortable place in church. I was told basically, we don't ask questions like that. So I, I left and as, as you noted, I went into the arts, um, always looking for the same thing. What, what is deepest and truest about life? And one of, one of my touchstones in that time is a passage from William Wordsworth's amazing poem, Tintern Abbey, where he describes the power of a landscape to be a teacher, uh, to be with you even when you're not there. And he talks about, about that when he's returned to a place after five years. And he says, I trust to this, I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime. That supreme and blessed mood in which the affections, our non-rational mind, gently lead us on till with an eye made quiet with the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. He talks about the breath and the blood being almost stilled and opening a new kind of vision. That to me has been a guide. Uh, and I've always paired that with how does that manifest out into the world? Uh, it, it, it's one thing to take it all in and to work on inner transformation. For me, that was part of a reciprocal engagement. What does that offer into the world? So at a certain point, I reconnected with the church, sort of kicking and screaming, uh, and realized two things. One, that I still felt called to be a priest, even though I was no longer really sure what that meant. And number two, that my questions could be a gift for my priesthood rather than something that disqualified me. So I re-entered the church at the level of this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. And to this day, I say that's really all the theology I need. Uh, I, I, uh, if I have that, I'm fine. So I went into the priesthood expecting to be a parish priest and in 30 plus years, I've been a parish priest for six years, but I feel I was led into the ministry that was truly mine and it's been a gift. And, and that transitioned then after six years into you being one of these founding members of URI was, was part of your impetus for um, working with this initiative and, and founding this initiative part of the community thing? Like, what is, for you, community-based peace building, and when did you become interested 
And it was that something that happened during your, your, your tenure as an Episcopal priest, or was it like, how did that all, what had that transition? Hopefully I'm (laughs) getting what the question is here. Yeah, there are so many dimensions of that. And I'll just hit a couple of, of moments. Uh, at, At a certain point, my wife and I were living in Minnesota. I was doing some theater work. She was Uh, going to school to get her teaching degree after having a theater degree. And we ended up uh, helping to put a roof over our heads and food on the table by being the counselors and house parents at a group home for 12 developmentally disabled teenagers. That was a real community. It was a community I will use the words, a community of souls that many people uh, would see the clothing the souls wore and want to discount them as as damaged, as somehow not worthy of attention. I grew up with a brother who had Down syndrome and he was, and to this day remains, one of my greatest teachers. Uh, But that, that was, The only way to be in that community with authenticity was to connect soul to soul in my experience, to see beyond all the veils, to see the soul that was in that body and to ask, how can I, how can we together help that soul manifest? So that's that's one piece. Another, when I, I went to seminary, Uh, Near the end of my first year, I was invited to become the part-time director of a social outreach ministry that was in a geographically isolated part of Marin County called the San Rafael Canal area that was largely populated with immigrant and refugee people and surrounded by one of the most affluent counties in the United States with lots of religious congregations and The only connection between the two was maybe someone would go clean a house or take care of the yard. And that this effort was to find out how how could we create a bridge that people would walk across in both directions. It's not people from the materially wealthy part of the county coming in with their largesse and offering it. It's saying there are gifts and needs on both sides of this bridge. How do we get people crossing it? it was another, that was a very, very particularly geographically based community building. And it was helping people get to go again, beyond surface, beyond stereotypes to connect soul to soul, or as I might say in a different language system from our baptismal covenant to seek and serve Christ in all people, to seek and serve Christ in all people, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So you've got to love yourself and Mm -hmm. you need to find in yourself, whatever that word Christ or soul might point to for you, you need to find it in yourself to be able to see it and find it in other people. And once that dynamic is guiding relationships, that to me is how you journey toward authentic community. 
yeah. when I got to the work of helping to found URI, to me, it was based on that kind of a foundation. And that was a global community. I spent four years traveling all over the world, meeting with an amazing array of people from traditions I thought I knew to traditions I'd never heard of, languages, cultures I'd never heard of, and finding souls everywhere. Finding that when we moved into that realm beyond conventional sight, beyond conventional consciousness and language, there was no distinction. When yeah. we move out of that a little bit and start to reframe in our conventional consciousness and put language to things, distinctions arise. <laughs> but if we can stand together in the place beyond distinction, we can abide in the place with distinction in a way that trends toward the peaceable kingdom, the yeah. beloved it's you're really speaking it feels to me in non-dual terms here and one of i know in um like the non-dual shaiva tantric teachings love is defined as you know we can define love as you're defining christ love is the ability to perceive the shared being in all of us the ability to perceive the true nature first within myself so that I can recognize that that same true nature is what you are that's living in as and through you. And to me, this hits on something really, really important. I'm so curious to talk a bit more about URI and maybe this piece because everybody's coming from these different teachings, I would say the way that we're putting it into the framework that we're using for this podcast, right, is the teachings, the teachers, the practice, the community. And religions are just these different teachings, which are just really just different stories. You and I had a wonderful conversation last week, I think it was around holding stories loosely versus gripping too tightly to our stories. But those stories also create identities and those identities get ossified as truth and then that's what I believe keeps us it's a different way of saying exactly what you just said I think that keeps us from seeing and, and recognizing our true nature being able to touch into the Christ or the Buddha or the Mohammed within within ourselves so that we can see that with others and I'm wondering how that was, you know, working with URI and you worked with all of these community leaders, leaders who were presumably teachers as well um, in, in some shape or form. Um, how does that work? Was everybody very open to that or was there work that needed to be done around exactly what we're speaking to? Yeah. Yes, all the way around, <laughs> and no. Um, we, we spent four years 
convening people of different traditions all over the world, always working with local partners who knew the multiplicity of the local setting, knew its diversity. Um, and um, I'll just, I'll, I'll share a story about the kind of dynamic that could pertain. The, the, the trajectory was to ask people if together we could imagine how interfaith cooperation might make a local community, a country, the world, a better place for everyone. Can we imagine how that might, interfaith cooperation might be a contributing factor? And if so, can we imagine what it might look like to have that happening? So we brought people all over the world into that act of imagining together and then beginning to say, well, okay, if we're gonna go beyond imagining and make something real, what would we do here? Uh, but then I think 1997, we had a gathering in Nairobi. I had people from, mostly from Nairobi, but from, uh, uh, some other countries in, in uh, uh, East Africa as well. And after the first day, you know, when people gathered, they're kind of sitting around round tables and looking sideways. Oh, there's someone I know. I have no idea who these other people are, but I'm pretty sure I don't want to be sitting in a room with them. Was, you know, it was that kind of energy. Uh, uh, during coffee break the second day, I had someone come up to me and say, you know, I'm Christian. And I, uh, when I got the invitation to this, I didn't want to come because I was afraid I was going to have to talk to a Muslim and I didn't want to do that. And then said, but I decided I should give it a try. And I'm so glad I did, because you know what? I did have to talk to a Muslim. And I discovered that that wasn't the person I'd always assumed that person would be. And instead of this strange other that I only have negative imaginings about, there's a human being I've met. And we have so much in common, our differences as well, but there's work we can do together. And then someone would come up and say, I'm Muslim and I didn't want to come to this because I was afraid I was going to have to talk to a Christian. So that, that happened a lot. There were also people who came who already held a very expansive notion of spirituality, a very expansive notion of this whole endeavor that is under the realm of religion, spirituality. Uh, and were already very open. What challenged them sometimes was people who were so firmly rooted in their own tradition that they didn't have a lot of space to try to take in other possibilities. So there was an enormous continuum as in the human population. Uh, and it was bringing that group together again and again and again in different places, different people to forge a vision and try to put words to it that everyone could find themselves in, which meant the language had to be expansive. It couldn't be prescriptive. Right. And if I can share one 
more story about this? Yes, please. Uh, we, we, we closing in on signing a charter in June of 2000, we had uh, the year before, we had a gathering that showed the, uh, the work we've been doing for three years to help craft a charter with a preamble, a purpose and a principles. And we had people from all over the world hearing it, uh, seeing what they felt uh, would, uh, would make sense, what worked, what didn't. And we got a lot of affirmation on everything except the purpose statement. And everyone hated the purpose statement. The one sentence that was supposed to can, you know, kind of crystallize everything. And at that point, I thought, I, I, I quit, you know. <laughs> I put everything I can into this, and no one sees anything in it. But I, I said, well, look, anyone who's passionate about the purpose statement, let's meet in a room over there in a half an hour. About 35 people showed up. We were sitting in a circle. And I asked people to say, what is most important for you to have in the purpose statement if you're going to be able to find yourself there? And by extension, folks from the kind of community you come from. The first person who spoke was an Anglican bishop from uh, Vancouver. And he said, well, as, as an Anglican, as a bishop, just as the person I am, for me to be able to find myself in this purpose statement, God has to be there. Hmm. Everyone, you know, listen carefully, nodding heads, okay. And then we go around person after person and we get opposite in the circle, opposite the Anglican bishop. There's a Buddhist monk from Korea who said, well, as a Buddhist, uh, what I need to be able to find myself in this purpose is for God to not be there. <laughs> well, okay. you, you can't get more oppositional than right. God has to be, God can't be. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, th this could be it. Uh, but a strange thing had happened as we'd worked together. People had come to love each other to respect each other, even when they disagreed, to respect the value in other people's traditions, even if it seemed to conflict in some ways with their own. And so no one was willing to say, we can't do this. And it took a lot more work over the coming months, but we ended up coming up with this sentence for the purpose that goes, uh, we, people of diverse religions, spiritual expressions, and indigenous traditions throughout the world, hereby establish the United Religions Initiative to promote enduring daily interfaith cooperation, to end religiously motivated violence, and to create cultures of peace, justice, and healing for the earth and all living beings. The Anglican bishop found God in that. The Buddhist monk found not God in that. And they were able to link arms and move into the founding of URI together. Wow, that's an amazing story. And I mean, the big piece of it is acceptance of 
each other. But even deeper than that, I, as you were talking, I was realizing that this term find myself, like, but who is in non-dual terms, right? But who is the self that you're trying to find? Who is the myself, which is, as we went, go back, it's the, the Christ that exists within each of us, the Buddha that exists within each of us, that is the same being. I see you you know, I see me in you and, and this piece. And so it's almost uh, when you read this statement and in this story is such a, a story of a beautiful story of acceptance and allowance. And I imagine that it was like with all the people that, that all the members of URI, all the leaders there, as you said, some have more of an expanded view and some maybe a little more rigid and held closely to their, their uh, religion, the stories, the teachings in a way that maybe didn't allow for that. But despite all of that, the ability to allow others to be, quote unquote, as they are, just in that allowing allows for both to happen for 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 just an allowing of okay I see that we're different and I accept that that's one level but then there's this other level of but I see that you really are who I am so it's be I don't know if that makes sense but there's this beauty in that statement because it's holding both of those equally which allows for the differing levels of um leaders uh, of I don't like to say some are higher it's just different right it's not one or the other they're just differing differing views so beautiful I just love that did you find it all in your work over those years because we're talking now about leaders and were most of them teachers like we're, we're saying like were they religious leaders in their community um what were what I mean when well, we said yeah like a Buddhist monk and an Episcopal or a, a bishop an archbishop most of them were in their community like this well when we started our initial vision was that we needed to convene religious slash spiritual and interfaith leaders in a conventionally construed notion people with positions of recognized leadership we were quickly convinced that as this succeeded, it would have an impact on every dimension of human endeavor. And so we needed people from every uh, kind of engagement, not just religious spiritual leaders. We needed educators, we needed healers, we needed business people, we needed artists, we needed people in communication, scientists. So. Uh, I have a very expansive view of leadership. Um, and a lot of it is non-traditional. At, at the time we were doing this, the general state of international interfaith work was to work with high level elites, mm -hmm. uh, people who held really top level positions of authority. Um, 
that did a couple of things, at least. I mean, there's, I, I don't want to discount the benefit of that because often those people haven't been talking with each other and there was a great value in that and a great value in helping a, a group of leaders at that level look at a particular issue and ask how could they work together. That was and continues to be invaluable. And people at that level have a, a, a level of institutional responsibility that takes away a large measure of freedom. Mm. I remember being with uh, a patriarch in Jerusalem who hearing about this work said, I am so glad you're out there doing that because I feel trapped in this place I'm in, in the role I'm in. I have to stand up for this and it's much harder for me to do what you're talking about. So we, we made an early decision to organize in the grassroots in part to get away from that, to get away from people who were bound by uh, institutional responsibility. The other reason we did that was because we were absolutely convinced that this could not succeed and have the kind of impact we believed it could and should without the leadership of women. Mm -hmm. And at that point, and still uh, to a large extent, if you look at the world over, those elite levels of religious leadership are dominated by men, mm -hmm. often in very patriarchal traditions that have been patriarchally formed and interpreted. So uh, a dance, how do you honor tradition and still make space for innovation? I think that is a critical question everywhere all the time if we're going to evolve. Yeah, I mean, that's how, how did you answer that question with, in, with, in URI? Well, uh, uh, that is one of those questions you live into more than answer. <laughs> it, yeah. uh, you state the intention that you want to find a way to balance that. Uh, and ultimately, uh, I felt we needed always to trust the people who were closest to the ground. They knew their reality, what might seem like an insignificant step to someone in one place was earth shattering in another. Mm -hmm. So to say that it has to look like this, one of the key elements of the charter we signed was that each, each member unit, each cooperation circle had the right to organize around any issue in any manner and at any scale it chose, as long as it included in its deliberations all the people who might be affected by that. So um, there wasn't a dictation from a headquarters or from a global board that said, this is how you have to work. We said, here are the principles we've agreed to. Mm -hmm. And we have, to, we have to do our best every day to honor those principles and work toward realizing this purpose. But then it's really up to the local groups to decide. So... If you've set an ethos where you want openness, you want uh, people to grow and learn, uh, 
and you've created a structure where for people to be involved, they have to be involved with people from different places, different spiritual homes, different indigenous or religious homes, then you create a mix where people can live in that tension all the time. And one really specific example, um, there's this notion, you may well have run across it, uh, called syncretism. Uh, which is a cardinal sin in some uh, circles, which is mixing religions. Mm. Uh, and there was a cardinal rule for uh, a lot of early interfaith that syncretism was to be avoided at all costs, even the appearance of that. So for instance, you would hear about a Pope having a prayer gathering for peace, an interfaith prayer gathering for peace, but people would pray in separate places because it felt like there was some danger if everyone was praying together in the same place. So that's a strong, strong and historically powerful stream. You have to avoid that. Well, there are other people for whom that's just a, an unimaginable concept. <laughs> right. Look at, at, at Chinese religion, for instance, where people are very comfortably Taoist, Confucianist, Buddhist. Uh, uh, that's just part of their understanding. Well, okay, do you say one's right and one's wrong? You could say one, I would say, one is more open to diverse possibilities and one is seeking to control more. But how do we? honor yeah. the people who have lived in this, you have to avoid this, and live in a more expansive reality that we feel reflects where we're headed. There isn't a answer, but there are values you live into, including respecting where people come from and not proselytizing or trying to force anyone to participate in a ritual they don't feel comfortable with. And so then you start asking when we're putting together a ritual, is this something that is likely to work for most people? I have a lovely Buddhist monk who was speaking about a dear Brahma Kumari sister of ours who passed away. And he said, in early URI gatherings, we as two vowed celibates in a circle, when people were getting ready to hug, would look knowingly at each other and simply give, he called it the Buddhist hug. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you have to develop that sensitivity. You have to be yeah. willing to get things wrong sometimes, but learn and not get them wrong a second time. Yeah, there, there's, again, I guess that this theme of allowing, it's just a huge, just a maybe an unspoken, but maybe spoken, but just what I hear you say is within the guidelines of these principles, there's just a, a, an allowing. And what I love about that is um, in, in the non-dual Shaiva traditions, when you do some specific uh, meditations, direct experience meditations, you recognize that the ground of all being from which everything emerges and into which everything subsides back again is what's holding everything. It doesn't 
resist or grasp towards it allows everything to be there it, it's it's allowing it's unconditionally allowing and this is maybe even and just another attribute or aspect of what we would call love love allows for all possibilities it doesn't say no it says yes to the sacred and the profane it says yes to the fundamentalist christian and the hippy dippy new age <laughs> like checking out every spiritual tradition person like yes yes to it all and I, I would i would agree with that except i think there are times when love does say no yeah true yes you're right i think there, there are things every tradition understands that there are lines that you should not cross um, there is a great playing field of freedom, but there are boundaries to that playing field. Not everything is allowed. Right. Uh, not everything is sanctioned. I guess the, the distinction is, uh, the slight distinction is that the truth is, and in direct experience, everything does you know, everything is there. It doesn't mean, meaning, how do I want to say it? That within the, this field, this ground of being, everything is allowed, everything comes. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's the best thing for everybody. And then there's, I don't know what the other distinction would be. Uh, one of the ways I've heard it expressed is you can love everything and everyone, but that doesn't mean that you're obligated to like it or that person or whatever. And then you make a stand. You stand for what's good, true, and beautiful to the best of your ability. I guess that's the slight distinction there. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. So... I'd love to, well, a, a couple things. I want to ask you is sort of more come back around to the personal again, and then I'd love to have you share a poem with us. Um, you're just an amazing writer and poet, and I'd love to have you share a poem with our community. But before we do that, I'd love to hear from you. What are, you know, currently for you in your life, what are the teachings that you follow? Do you have, yeah, I guess maybe that's the first piece I want to ask you is just what what teachings do you currently follow mm -hmm. well uh, most immediately the amazing uh, photographs from the James Webb Space Telescope uh, I was absolutely riveted earlier today watching the unfolding of the first images and the explanation of how we got that the notion that we can now see back over 13 billion years in time. I can sit and learn from that, just that simple reality for a long time. So for me, I guess the extension of that is interaction with the natural world has always been 
a great teacher for me. Um, honestly, I have a, a, a complicated relationship with sacred texts. I, I happen to, from my own experience, have reached a conclusion that, uh, that they all, all the ones I've read, which is far from all that are there, uh, are both luminous with what seems to be clear uh, revelation that goes to the heart of things and uh, kind of bogged down in things that are more uh, culturally, historically rooted mm -hmm. uh, that tragically often are elevated above what I would say to be the clear, deep, true messages and used to oppress people, used to exclude people, used to wipe out populations. There just is so much of that. So I, I turn often to uh, the Christian scriptures, which of course are founded on and include uh, uh, Hebrew scriptures. Uh, I have about five copies of the Tao Te Ching, and I, the older I get, the more Taoist I become. I've got, I think, two uh, different translations of the Quran. I've got the Torah. I've got, I've got, I mean, I, all of those things to me are, uh, are sources of wisdom. I, uh, for uh, twice a month, I offer uh, due to the gracious invitation of the, the leaders of this community, offer teachings in a Sufi community that is uh, probably my closest spiritual home right now um and on and on i i am happy to receive wisdom from whatever source and by now in my 71st year i feel as though i've developed a fairly decent discernment and you know one of one of the volumes in my uh bookshelf over there is thomas jefferson's uh, gospels. I, I, this is a story that many people don't know that Thomas Jefferson actually took scissors to uh, the gospels of the New Testament um, and removed the things he felt didn't belong and, and basically cut and paste together what he felt was the, the authentic gospel. And, and he said in a, a very inelegant way, words to the effect that the gospels as they exist in the New Testament contain these incredible gems buried in mounds of manure. And any discerning reader can tell the difference between the gems and the manure. So I'm open uh, and as, as the presiding bishop of the Episcopal church says again and again, ask yourself one question does this have to do with love and if the answer is yes then you can fairly reliably say it is of god and if the answer is no it doesn't really matter where it comes from yeah yeah and and i guess it's you know what's what definition of love are you using and and 
there's a lot and you use that word discernment which is so important i know in yoga tradition discernment is critical but i think it is for any anyone um you know who's who's on the path of spiritual awakening and we like i said earlier we had talked about the the idea that teachings are just stories and stories are words and words are just tools they're not truths they can point to the truth but words can never express the ultimate truth because it has to be directly experienced and so um i 100 am on the same same boat with you with with the teachings i turn to them quite often because i the way I'm able to connect with them now is much different than 20 years ago. So like you, I feel like I can be discerning and I can just contemplate a, a, a sentence or a word and, and have a felt experience of it. And that's all I need from the scripture at that point, where, as opposed to being conceptual and trying to understand it with my head um, yeah. and, and my intellect, I should say. So, and I love how you also turn to, and it sounds like it's also just naturally a part of your practice, um, turning to nature because divinity is expressed. <laughs> that is divinity expressed as light coming through. How many billions of years did you say? 13? 13, over thir 13, I think 13.1. Amazing. And that's getting back close to... Uh, the time of the Big Bang. And I was talking with a, a friend earlier today, a, a Catholic priest uh, who's moved way beyond just sort of a conventional notion of what it means to be a Catholic priest into a very expansive interfaith leadership. We were talking about, uh, well, okay, if we see back to the Big Bang, is there a wall there and that's the end of it? Or do you see past the Big Bang, and if you see past the Big Bang, what do you see? It's hmm. a good, That's good a contemplation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, would you be willing to share, just to close us up, with one of your poems? I would, I would be happy to, and in fact, this is a, a pretty new one. It's uh, a week or so old, uh, and it seems relevant to what we've been talking about. Um, it's called Living Water. Where is the well to draw the beloved's living water? Where's the well to draw the beloved's living water? when all stories of God seem closed doors, not open windows, fingers pointing at the wounding past, not the luminous moon. Once a wise one shining with an inner light shared this wisdom with me. Pure love desires only that all that is return to the beloved for love. Then asked me to laugh more, and though it wasn't said, to love more, to love all. 
Then this wise one who asked me to laugh and to love more continued, so vast is the beloved's love that if in an instant all returned and received all the love each and all could ever want or need, it would be as if a tiny bird took a sip from the fathomless ocean. Laugh and love more, the wise one luminous with inner light once told me, and though it wasn't said, it seemed clear that over the millennia, many have dipped a cup of pure love from the fathomless ocean, claimed it as their own, gripped it tightly until it held waters of wounding more than waters of life. Far too brackish to birth laughter or love. Whoever you are, no matter how wounded, know this, you have never deserved your wounding. Whoever you are, no matter how wounded, know this, you have never deserved your wounding. Like all that is, you too come from the fathomless ocean of love. In each instant, you are invited to return and beyond all wounding words, doorless walls, fingers pointing at the brackish cup, bathe in its buoyant waters of life. Receive all the love you can ever want or need. The beloved welcomes you anew to these living waters. You are home. Drink freely, deeply. Remember, love asks only for you to shine with an inner light, to laugh more, to love more, to love all, to be loved by all. Wow. I'm going to have to re-listen to that one over and over. It's so gorgeous. Thank you so much. And as we close out, I know that that is in an upcoming book or uh, yeah. tell us where, where listeners can find more of your writings. Well, I have one book of poems out that is called Light Reading Poems from a Pilgrim Journey that is, uh, I know, available through that problematic behemoth Amazon. <laughs> um, and I'm working on a follow-up volume that I'm calling Thin Poems, uh, uh, thin from the notion of thin places where the veil is thin. Beautiful. All right. And your website, if anyone were to find want to find out more about you, let us know what your website is as well. It is revcharlesgibbs.net. Wonderful. Well, Charles Gibbs, thank you so much for joining us on the Karmic Warrior podcast. It was such a delight to have this conversation with you and enlightening as well. 
Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you. You're most welcome, Lisa. And again, thanks for the great light you shine. <laughs> Thank you.